And we are live with another episode of Absolute AppSec. Uh, this is episode number 15. I'm Ken Johnson, joined by my co-host, Seth Law. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again. And uh, I have once again forgot to mute the video, the live watch page. Uh, and we're joined by our special guest tonight, uh, Kevin Cody. Kevin's been on before. Kevin, say hi. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Kevin was, uh, so Kevin, you were on and I want to say February, was it February? I think something like that. It was much colder. <laughs> <laughs> it was much colder. And basic gist is we had some really good conversations, but you know, one thing we didn't get to was, uh, you know, mobiles, mobile security tooling and tips for testing and things like that. So it's part of what we're going to, um, cover tonight but uh yeah thanks for thanks for joining us kevin appreciate it absolutely happy to be here again uh you guys probably see me in the chats every week or, or i'll watch them in, or listen in the car uh you know on the way to the, the airport or, or whatnot I, I am a fan so I'm, I'm happy to be back on again yeah and we definitely appreciate you sharing your knowledge with folks um for those who don't know kevin cody he's a uh, principal consultant over at invisium and he I mean, as far as people I know that do mobile, he's in the top tier. He's uh, somebody I I would definitely ask questions if you're if you're watching tonight. Definitely ask any questions that you have around mobile security to Kevin. Yeah, um, you can, yeah, you can ask us here if you've got something specific, or uh, uh, you know, you're on Twitter. I think we've already established that, right? Um, but hit him up on Twitter or us on Twitter, and we can point you in the right direction. Yeah, just a reminder, the email is absoluteappsec at gmail.com. Um, so that's uh, another way you can reach us. Uh, so before the show, we were talking, well, I mean, we were talking about sort of the uh, the RSA um, uh, app and pr- the, the, the various mobile vulnerabilities um, that we've seen publicly. Um, in terms of your testing, Kevin Cody, uh, you know, what, what are some common things you see in, in, you know, in terms of mobile security flaws? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I'm an OWASP guy to the OWASP uh, Pittsburgh chapter thing here. Um, you know, I think, I think the OWASP, uh, mobile testing guy, the OWASP, uh, I don't think they've had an update to the top 10 lately, but the, the OWASP mobile top 10 from several years ago, I think it does a pretty good job encapsulating, uh, the, some of the issues that we see with mobile, uh, you know, just brass tax uh, situation, you know, from a mobile app, um, perspective, you know, we have basically a melding of, um, a web app with a thick client app. Uh, so, you know, if you've done any testing on thick client apps before, you're going to feel kind of at home as long as you have some um, understanding of the two ecos- two primary ecosystems, Android and iOS. Uh, if you've done any web application stuff before, 90% of the applications out there use some type of web component. Uh, so you'll probably feel comfortable with that. So, um, you know, basically anything in the OWASP top 10 from the website is going to be applicable. Anything from the, the obviously the mobile specific stuff from, from uh, the OWASP uh, testing guides uh, is obviously going to be applicable. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, 
you know, anything that you can think of from the web world is, is applicable to mobile and anything that you can think of from the thick client world or, or the, the mobile specific world uh, as far as uh, threat actors with wireless radios, uh, on you know, storage of, of materials locally, that kind of stuff is, is going to be applicable too. Cool. So, I mean, if we, we dig into, you know, just specifics, right? Um, I mean, obviously the data, the data storage aspect is pretty huge, like stolen devices or somebody's compromising a device. Um, but uh, do you have any examples of that, right? I mean, obviously we've been talking about RSA. That was a couple of weeks ago. That was the one that was released on Twitter where somebody could get all of the, uh, all of the attendee information from the backend web service, right? Based on the keys that were in the mobile app. But what else have you seen? What else has been interesting to you in the mobile space that you know you would call out or would find as an interesting, you know, anecdote, I guess, uh, of the way that a mobile app fails? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you have a mobile application, uh, the first thing that I like to do is is just kind of like a like a web application, just spider the thing, go through, see what. Um, uh, Internal calls it's making if you can hook things internally or, or view um, you know view view API calls or, or do some dynamic uh, hooking and also of course we're going to view any external traffic to web services to uh, any other um, you know local um, network traffic or whatnot so. I will be completely honest. I'm not 100% uh, versed in the specific RSA thing. I saw a lot of chatter on it. I specifically didn't click into it just because sometimes ignorance is bliss when it comes to people who are actively looking at stuff out there in the wild. Uh, I'll look at the postmortem in a few weeks, maybe. Uh, but I didn't want to get tempted, to be completely honest. But um, well, uh, I, mean, I mean, I can give you a rundown. I because yeah, I read, yeah, please. I, I read through the post, right? Um, and it it wasn't anything that shocking to be honest with you like it, you know i you know i've i've done a lot of mobile apps too we've 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 worked together on them before um and on the tooling so it, this is why we wanted to chat about it but um basically it was a combination of an insecure direct object reference on the back end in the web service but access to the web service uh required a, a key that was hard coded in the application itself right um, and that, that's from what I can ascertain from the screenshots that they actually posted there was they were spinning through a whole bunch of numbers and then returning, you know, data at which they, you know, they screenshotted, oh, here's a whole bunch of first names from the app itself that was being dumped out from Burp because they had the key that they extracted from the application itself. So it wasn't all that shocking to me that this is, this, this is the case, but, um, I mean, that, that was this conference application. I've seen other ones that'll dump out, you know, a full attendee list based on the endpoint that you that you access. It, it doesn't seem to be that surprising for a conference application to have this sort of a problem. Um, have you dug into conference applications before? I, I mean, I know it's a, I mean, for me, it's a, it's a huge problem when I'm at the conference because I want to see what it's doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've sat in, a, in talks and for two hours, I haven't done anything but poked in an application, right? That was AWS reInvent 2017, 2017. I I think we did that, didn't we, Ken? Uh, Yeah. We were trying to game their like little app so we could get free stuff, more free stuff from Amazon for having more friends or something like that, right? It was for science. For science. (laughs) Yes. I I have looked into mobile uh, conference apps like, you know, Sketch or or, uh, 
uh, Cvent or, or something. I have actually a really nerdy reason why I did it once, and it was simply because you you submitted your feedback for the speakers in the mobile app, and I was a speaker, and I wanted to see. I just got like four point whatever stars or one point whatever stars. I'm not trying to gloat. Uh, whatever it was, I wanted to see what that number of people who voted was. I didn't just want to see a decimal, uh, 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 you know, number. So I middled the traffic, looked at the JSON response, and could actually see what the average was from the raw data that was coming from the endpoint, um, and figured out that it was like six people who voted or whatever. But um, yeah, so so I have looked at at, at uh, mobile applications from from conferences, and I, I think what you've hit on as far as as looking at the specific vulnerability from the RSA app is certainly a microcosm of the bigger mobile picture, which is mobile applications are somewhat unique because you have the ability to have local storage um, and somewhat secure local storage if you do it right. Uh, you can. In iOS, you can use the, the keychain and have some really strong um, encryption, uh, hardware-based encryption uh, back to uh, for storing secrets and whatnot. In Android, you can use the TEE, uh, which is basically just a trusted enclave uh, or secure enclave, and you can do some math and and, and, and utilize uh, trusted execution of that uh, that chip to do some crypto operations and, and mathematically prove the data you have is is legit or whatnot. So um, that's great, and that gives us the ability to store something outside of say local storage or session storage, uh, which is certainly not very secure. So, uh, but. At the end of the day, if you're going to be interacting with web services, you're going to want to authenticate those web services. If you're going to want to authenticate those web services, you have to keep that authentication token or cookie or something somewhere. And at that point in time, if it's in a SQLite database, if it's in the keychain, if it's in um, a place in storage that is cryptographically signed or secured uh, but has to be available at runtime, that's going to be exposed. It inherently has to be sent via HTTPS or whatever protocol you use. And at that point in time, it's ripe for abuse the same way web is, right? So. Well, and that, that's the interesting thing with this like two stage that they took for RSA, right? I mean, number one, they never should have hard coded that value in the binary itself, right? But even had they stored that in a secure enclave, the fact that it was good to actually enumerate through, right? Doesn't mean that it wasn't it was necessarily protected against that, right? Uh, you know, you still would be able to extract that key had you done some of the techniques that we use for intercepting the traffic, running it through a proxy, right? We still would have been able to identify this and actually pull that information back, right? Um, so, like, like I, I guess what I'm saying is that you know your perspective on analyzing these sorts of applications uh, you know is entirely correct right? it's this thick client application that you've got to think about the surfaces both of the surfaces from a mobile perspective and then also from a web perspective um, and if you don't that's where you have a problem because of the because of the nature of that insecure application you've got to trust that the user that's holding your mobile application is doing it in a non-malicious manner or protect against the malicious you know, the people like us that are actually trying to get into it, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a gentleman uh, from, you know, I, I'm from Pittsburgh. 
uh, I've dealt with with uh, folks from a, a peer and, and friend level uh, up through a professional level here at the, the CERT at CMU. And there's one gentleman who's done several um, analysis of of the the different app stores for different um, hard coded creds, uh, trust chain issues. Um, Trying to think of a couple other. He basically built a tool which uses, uh, you know, VMs and and, and different ways of, of downloading, um, dynamically uh, analyzing code as well as statically analyzing code using ephemeral environments and spitting out basically, you know, vulnerabilities by the tens of thousands. Um, and at one point in time, he did drop like ten thousand CVEs at one point in time, uh, which was a, a fun exercise. But, so is um, that, I mean. It, it, Talk about that a little bit, because I, I like I'm really interested to see what like did, was he analyzing mostly mostly the Android stores, or did he actually get into the iOS one as well, or the you know the App Store from Apple? Um, what was his technique? I, I mean, if we can find like if we could post this, this would be great. I, I mean, for me in the future as it is. Yeah, specifically the one that I was I was just referencing or that I dealt with from a professional level was Android. Um, so so he had a tool from uh, you know, CMU's cert called Tapioca. Um, and basically it consisted of um, the, uh, not VMware, the, the open version. Um, uh, anyway, VirtualBox, uh, 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 virtual yeah. thank you. It consisted of VirtualBox and um, uh, some different MITM proxies and, and, and different things. And basically it would just spin up these ephemeral VM instances, do both static and dynamic uh, code analysis. And it could, it could basically hook the, the different applications using um, you know, the proxies and check for trust chain issues. And that specifically the one that I interfaced with at a place that I used to work was a trust chain issue. It was, um, you know, somewhere in the trust chain was broken for one of our mobile applications. He dropped like 10,000 CVEs for a ton of different applications. And we got that call like Thursday that said, hey, uh, the CVE is going to be popular. This is going to be posted. You guys better fix your mobile app. But anyway, um, I would say the same thing could be done in it for a number of different things for Android, obviously. Yeah. But for iOS, outside of that like mythical new uh, platform that's been kicking around since the, the beginning of this year that no one's really gotten access to yet. I haven't seen much luck of, of, of virtualizing iOS, which obviously, Seth, you know that. But um, it's, a, it's a whole different game. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, if I go back a few years, right, when I worked on the Tool stuff and we, we spoke at Black Hat, that was the whole, that was the whole uh, pie in the sky idea was that we could automate a lot of that and pull those down and actually do just low level analysis on the binaries that were in the app store. But that it, it that due to other reason, it other reasons it never happened. Um, but instrumenting anything in iOS is so difficult. Uh, just Apple doesn't give us the same low level access as Android does. So yeah, I mean, that brings us to another topic, right? I mean, we're talking about mobile assessments. We're talking about looking at mobile applications. Let's talk a little bit about the tool set that you use for actually analyzing a mobile application, right? Both on iOS and Android. Maybe let's start on Android and then we can talk iOS after that. Yeah, so um, I'm a device guy. I like to have physical devices when I'm doing testing, even though uh, Jenny Motion, the actual Android uh, uh, emulator from, from uh, Google, uh, they're great. 
and I think uh, GeniMotion even comes rooted like you don't even have to do a single command. Um, and and virtualization has, has, has or emulation virtualization has come a long way when it comes to Android. Uh, but I stick to my physical devices. I have a Nexus 7 rooted. I have a Motorola G4 um, that I bought specifically because a client said we want untouched, no special tool devices. So I went out and went to Dollar General and picked up the cheapest Android phone I could get. And I got home and my wife, my wife is, is, is so cute. She's like, is that a burner phone? And I said, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, I'm not gonna. Put She's any been watching a little too much Breaking Bad, right? You know, or yeah. But um, so I have like a like a a test device that has that's that's rooted and has all my tools and everything. Then I have a completely control device that has nothing special. The only thing I have done it is Android six, so you can still install a CA without rooting it and having the, the, the restrictions that the Google now puts in uh, NuGet and above uh, for, for trusting your own CA. So that's, I do have that. I have a CA installed. And that CA, of course, is then to be able to hook that up through Burp and look at traffic um, utilizing uh, TLS certificates that I can then mint on the fly and, and utilize for, for, for proxying. Um, but outside of having the physical device, Burp Suite is obviously my, my go-to. Um, I live in Burp like eight hours a day. Uh, I also use Frida pretty extensively. I use Frida for a bunch of different things. It's, it's a dynamic uh, hooking uh, toolkit if you haven't used Frida before. I use it for uh, pinning bypass. So there's a really good uh, pinning bypass module both for OK HTTP as well as um, just SSL context, I think. So um, I use it for that. Frida, I also use for just different, there's a couple different uh, hooking mechanisms, and one of them will just sit there and look at different cryptographic operations that are done and just kind of give you hints like, hey, this is what's being done, and then you can hook that you know, using uh, you know, different method, methods and whatnot. Um, and of course, I will SSH into the device or ADB into the device and, and get into the to the operating system, look at, at shared press, all that good stuff. But those are kind of my main go-tos when it comes to Android testing. I don't know, Seth or, or Ken, if you have any thoughts as far as other tools you guys like to use for Android. Well, I did want to ask you, you know, why, why the preference for physical devices um, over virtualization? Personally, I remember the days where um, virtualization was 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 slower. It, there were some issues with some different uh, motherboards and, and graphics cards and whatnot, and just wasn't a very uh, user friendly move. Um, also, as sensors began to evolve, you know, fingerprint sensors and different things, um, there was just a little bit clunky to use the emulator or virtualization on Android to utilize some of those features. And I've just always kind of gravitated towards using physical devices. And I think once you, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of like the, the burp versus zap argument. There's nothing wrong with zap. It's not that it doesn't do anything, but the workflow is just so different. And that's kind of my, my thought as far as, as uh, physical versus virtual. There's nothing that you is um, fundamentally different as far as Android's concerned. However, it's just my workflow. I just have, have gone, uh, gotten very comfortable with using physical devices. I've just kind of kept going down that road. <laughs> Obviously, there's there's huge advantages, especially what we just talked to, uh, as far as like ephemeral environments and stuff of using um, virtualization. But I, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, no, no. I was gonna. I, I mean, I wasn't gonna agree with you. I, I, I definitely tend towards physical devices. I, I mean, I came up through the iOS side, right, where it was basically mandated on me. So I, you know, I got used to using Burp with a physical device and actually making that work, and you know, not having to deal with Jenny Motion or VirtualBox, right? Or it doesn't happen to run within the VMware instance that I'm running, or you know, what have you, I just never put the time in to build my workflow out. And so it was easier for me to go buy a device. I know it's going to run on that device. Um, that being said, when I do get code reviews and things like that, that are mobile focused, I have found that using like Android Studio with the actual like target targeted emulator uh, works pretty well, right? To test it in a different way, but but I I come at it differently when it is code review than I do when it's a black box test of hey pull this data from the app store and then take a look at it, right? So you know you have that. I mean, have you played with Frida inside of the emulators as well? Have you found that that actually works the same way, um, or is that that part of your uh, workflow is that the physical device works better with Frida in that situation? That's a great question. I have not even tried to use Frida in a, in a virtualized Android device. Um, for iOS, it would be interesting. You'd have to use the dynamic library type hooking for Frida. Um, you would not be able to, there, there isn't really a good virtualization of a jailbroken device where you could have a daemon running on iOS. There is that one, and I, I apologize. I tried Googling it quickly and I can't find it. There is a announced soon to be launching full virtualization of iOS that's jailbroken and has script installed um, out of the box. It's supposed to be debuting any day, month, year from now um, that I would imagine you would be able to do Frida and, and whatever hooking you wanted from that. However, um, unless you use the dynamic library uh, hooking for iOS, uh, and I still don't know how that would work with, with the, uh, the emulator uh, with, in Xcode, but I haven't tried iOS at all. For Android, I've, I've um, just kind of stuck to my guns with, with physical device and using, using Frida in the manner in which I, I learned how to use it. And uh, I would imagine it would work. I just honestly haven't tried. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about Frida then, right? Yeah. I mean, because you are depending on that heavily, right? Uh, so Burp Suite, you're using for man-in-the-middle proxy to actually analyze the traffic and see what's going on there. Uh, what is it that you're using Frida to do within your workflow? I, I mean, you don't have to uncover any like you know special sauce, but you know, give us a, a rundown of what it is that Frida gives you that you don't necessarily have through SSH or something else. Yeah, absolutely. I was just uh, uh, pulling up the, the list. So there's actually a, a code share out there. It's it's codeshare.frida.re uh, that has a bunch of different JavaScript modules that are built for Frida uh, that can do a bunch of different things. Um, and they have them for iOS as well as Android because uh, Frida can, can be run on both. Frida can be run on Windows, Mac, iOS, Android, QNX. Uh, it's... it's uh, you know they have hooks for all the different uh, major platforms and, and and even desktop environments. And from there, uh, you write basically JavaScript modules that will plug in and, and, and do different things. So specifically, I use Frida for um, the big one is is uh, TLS pinning bypass. So okay. um, I it's not my only method of doing it, but it's an easy method. So if you have the Frida hook, 
and they use and the application uses the SSL context. Uh, you know, basically, it'll just wait in runtime to see that SSL context call. It'll hook that call, basically, kind of like swizzle the method, um, and uh, basically bypass that to pin to whatever CA you give it. So I would give it my burp CA, and it would just uh, basically say, oh, OK, don't go here to look for the CA. This is the CA you should be pinning to. And then uh, you know, uh, that's pretty much how it works. Uh, I've also used, and just looking through to make sure I'm not thinking, there's um, the other one, AES infos, is the crypto one, where it'll just look for cryptographic operations and dump out any time that cryptographic operations are being done in the application. So you can just use the app. Uh, you know, do a do a, a pipe to whatever you want, and then go back through and see when the different cryptographic operations were done. If it can analyze it, sometimes it'll actually output the clear text. Sometimes it'll just say, "Yeah, AES was done here" or whatnot. So that's again uh, runtime um, kind of dynamic uh, runtime output, I guess you'd say for for that one specifically. But you can do hooking. You can do um, you know, different types of, of oh, the other big one I'm, I'm forgetting is um, free dump, which is memory dumps. So basically, it's it's Python that was written as a hook for Frida. And basically, you can dump the entire memory of the device, uh, just like uh, uh, there's some other tools that are, I'm blanking on at the moment, because free dump is my go to now. So um, uh, yeah, dumping memory is, is another big one that I use Frida for. Okay. Yeah, so you're you're looking for things on device using the, to break the SSL, like the pinning, right? and that, that'll bring us to another topic here shortly for sure. Um, you're using it to dump the memory to look again for unprotected spaces. I, I mean, it sounds like it sounds a lot like de debugger functionality is what you're using Frida for, right? Is to make changes to the binary as it's running locally so that you can analyze the application as it's running. Is, is that a correct statement? That's absolutely correct. It's it's somewhat similar to um, script or size script, whatever uh, yeah. if, if you want to call it that in the in the iOS space. Uh, I think Drozer used to do, uh, or maybe it's still maintained. I don't uh, no disrespect to the to the Drozer folks can do some of this as well with some different hooks. Uh, I've I've just gravitated towards Frida because the nice thing about Frida it is cross platform um, and uh, it's. It's, it's pretty straightforward to get installed as long as you have the right access. Uh, it basically spins up a daemon on the device, iOS or Android, and um, you can you can utilize the, the, the code share scripts, you can write your own scripts in, in JavaScript and use it for dynamic hooking uh, at runtime. Okay, so have you, have you seen a difference? So if we switch over to the iOS side, okay, we've talked to Android, Frida, you know, the stuff that you're using there. Um, I mean, we could talk about Exposed and some of the other like, uh, rooted device options on uh, Android. I'm pretty sure. I'm sure you've dealt with those. But let's switch over to iOS for a second. Um, if you are using a Frida on both of those different platforms, what differences do you see between those two? Um, and you know, how can somebody go about using it in both of those environments? Yeah. So in iOS. Uh, the one thing I don't use is obviously the SSL context uh, pinning bypass, and that's because it doesn't exist in iOS. The go-to gold master tried and true um, iOS is is the um, SSL kill switch, SSL kill switch two. Now, okay. um, obviously, you know this, Seth, but but for those of the, might be listening, that does basically break 
TLS across the board for any app that's using TLS if it's toggled to on. So be very careful you're only using that on a test device because it basically renders TLS moot if you have it turned on for, for SSL kill switch too. Um, I, I kind of use a mix of script as well as Frida for the, the dynamic cooking. And the reason for that is because folks like yourself, uh, Seth, uh, David Lindner, uh, some of, of, of my other iOS friends have written um, you know, pretty straightforward uh, scripts of obtaining different data from, um, from uh, the different methods swizzling and from the different uh, um, uh, hooks from script. So I've kind of just used that a little bit more. I think those could be migrated to Frida and probably limit the need to use both of those tool sets. Uh, however, I just haven't taken the time um, to, to, to make those. But there are some other good ones that are specifically for iOS from the code share as well. I'm looking at it over here on the screen. There's like Objective-C class dumpers. Uh, there is an iOS SSL bypass, but uh, I haven't tested it, so I can't, I can't vouch for it. Um, there's a data protection uh, class dumps. Uh, there's one that supposedly uh, can try to mask jailbreak, uh, you know, sort of like TS protect or something else in the, in the iOS space. Um, again, haven't tried that, so so uh, your mileage may vary, or I don't have any mileage, so use it at your will. But uh, yeah, you can see there's a bunch of different stuff. There's one here that's specific for Titanium apps. So if you have a Titanium build iOS app, uh, it's supposed to dump uh, encrypted assets from the Titanium app. So there's a ton of really good stuff from, from Frida, both on iOS and Android. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, I would encourage anybody that's looking at apps, uh, in a professional or even semi-professional, like, hey, you're just taking a look at it to get to know Frida because of the the power that it gives you. I mean, it's hooking into the 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 operating system like a debugger does. So it gives you a lot more power than just SSHing into the device, right? Um, I mean, it's very easy to jailbreak a device and then log in as root Alpine, um, but or you know to root a device on the the Android side and to, to get into it, but once you're there, actually having the ability to make changes or to manipulate the application to get it to do what you want it to do, as opposed to what the developers intended, which is the whole point of analyzing an application for security, is very difficult without having those debug hooks into the application, uh, and. Apple especially keeps making it more and more difficult to actually do anything, right? Um, I mean, it used to be what it was iOS 8.1.2, I want to say, when they took away the ability to actually modify files outside of the documents or in the documents and preferences directory, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, when they did that, it, it was a huge, like, security win for people that just use the device unjailbroken, but for us in the security community, it was, I mean, it was like D-Day, right? I, like, it was so like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Um, I have to have a jailbroken device to look at any of these apps or to be able to do anything. Uh, so uh, along those lines, right, if, I mean, have you dealt with any, like, I know there's services that are out there like Now Secure and some of those other vendors that are very mobile focused. Have you dealt with what they do in comparison to, you know, like our workflow? I'm not quite following you, um, and maybe that's because I don't know. I don't know the vendor you're, you're speaking to. Oh, I mean, there's a couple of the vendors. Like, if you look at uh, Veracode or Now Secure, that you can provide them with an app binary. Oh, yeah. I mean, Veracode is fairly, you know, that's static analysis. Yeah. Now Secure claims to do more of a um, 
and more of like an app assessment style uh, attack or, or assessment of your application. Yeah. But I'm not sure exactly how they're hooking in comparison to what we do from a, you know, a, a consulting perspective. So the question is probably moot if you haven't if you haven't dealt with it before. Um, but there are vendors out there that are mobile specific that you could take a look at if you're just looking for someone to do an assessment. Or you can talk to Kevin, right? you know, hit him up on Twitter. So. Yeah, um, I, I'm sorry. As soon as I looked at Nowskier, I, I have seen them and, and uh, I was curious of what their secret sauce was, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention, and, I, and it plays into the, the Frida thing, uh, and I remember the last episode that Stefan Edwards and David Corsi were on, you guys threw out the question. Um, Fios, which is Frida iOS something S, uh, it's spelled like Verizon Fios, and I'm waiting for that day to come where like, hey, we got to change your name. But yeah. um, it's a GUI interface on top of Frida, which stitches a bunch of the different Frida scripts and modules that I just spoke to. So you can dump out memory with a click. You can look at uh, the um, the class dumps with a click. You can look at all the device information. It's 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 actually a really nice, I believe it's electron-based GUI. And the gentleman who wrote it, I, it was, he's from Central America somewhere, I believe. He was just like a front-end designer who worked in tandem with a security guy who gave him the idea to write this around the, the, the free and open source free to scripts that were out there. So it actually is much, it has a GUI that's much more polished than any other security tool that I've used in a while. It's it's not perfect. There are some bugs. Sometimes things take a little a little while to come through and it's not a complete um you know complete uh, replacement for Frida, you know, command line. However, it's a really solid first attempt at, at, at what they were able to put together. So that's another one that uh, has snuck its way into my iOS toolbox. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Seth, you saw on Slack, but Dave, David, uh, of course, you mentioned that uh, <clears throat> now Secure uses Frida. <laughs> oh, he he found. Did he find an actual link, or does he have actual? You know, proof he could of be. That? Yeah, he could be just trolling, but uh, <clears throat> he oh, said they're GitHub as yeah. R two Frida. See, I, I mean, it's all about OSN, right? Or like. <laughs> <laughs> What, what their GitHub actually uses. And, and that doesn't surprise me, right? They're in, they are in the same boat as all the rest of us. Um, so actually, like, being able to analyze these applications, you've got to be able to run, you've got to be able to run a debugger against them. And if you don't have access to the source code, where do you turn? Uh, and that's where the physical device seems to come into play, at, at least for me. Um, but, you know, so, like, to go back a little bit on the iOS side, right? so if you've got Frida, have you played much with IDB and IRET, right? Like those other tools that are out there. What's your experience that with them? You know, what was it that you liked or you didn't like about them that pushed them out of your workflow? So IDB, um, I'll just I'll just be the guy who says it. I always have Ruby issues trying to get it to run, um, and I'm, that's I'm, that's why you have Canon speed dial. I know. <laughs> That's why you have Ken on speed dial. I'm thinking, you know, go to go to Ken or or, or, or mutual friend JP and like, why isn't this thing working? It's giving me this crazy Ruby error. So um, that's honestly why Fios was like the light that came down. I was like, oh, a replacement for IDB. It doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the hooks for dumping the keychain that okay. IDB had. However, 
IDB used um, Natin Jammy's uh, keychain editor behind yeah. the scenes anyway. And that's a funny story. I don't know if, if I said this before to you, but I was on an assessment at a different job and I'm sitting at, at a terminal, uh, you know, assessing an iOS app. And there was a gentleman from NCC group sitting next to me, completely different consulting group working for the same client. And he's working on an iOS app. And I was using Keychain Dumper to look at the Keychain contents. And he looks over and he says to me, why aren't you using Keychain Editor? Uh, it does what Keychain Dumper does, but it does it better and you can edit the contents. I said, oh, that's great. Where did you learn about this? And he's like, I wrote it. And it was Natin sitting next to me. And he was like, yeah, here, here it is, do it. And it was awesome. And I've used it ever since. Now, I think I tried it on iOS 11 with the Electron jailbreak and I, or Electra jailbreak, and I have had some issues. And I think I even opened up an issue on his GitHub page, but his GitHub page has been vacant for two years. He was picked up by Jet, Walmart's um, e-commerce company, Jet. And I don't know if he's doing a lot of stuff on his own anymore. But um, anyway, I still use Natin's tool for um, in in place of IDB's Keychain uh, dumper editor facility, which was just what it used on the back end anyway. But anyway, so Fios has, has fully replaced IDB for me. I think you might be able to tell me something that, that it can't do, but there's probably a command line tool that I've substituted out or a GUI tool via Fios that I can I can put in its place. And I, you know, I'll be honest with you, the other one I'm, I'm not familiar with, the other one you mentioned. You know, it's funny oh. is my coworker is Patrick Toomey who wrote Keychain Depper and he'd be the first one to tell you, like he'd be surprised if anyone was still using it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's always stuff. like to be honest it was always one of those that you knew was behind the scenes like keychain dumper and then keychain edit um and like you know if you have ssh access that's all that idb or i i read our i you know ios reverse engineering toolkit or something like that they're all just using these separate tools loading them on to SSH and then running them and, and, and formatting the output for you, right? Yep. So very similar to what your Fios is doing for Frida, it was doing for, was trying to gather all these different tools together to run locally. Yep. Uh, it, so like, it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. And half the time I, I found out there was path issues with IDB or with IRET and it would just piss me off. So I'd just go directly to the source because, yep. you know, it's Ruby, it's open source or, I read, I think was even something, it wasn't even Ruby. I, I think it was just a bunch of shell scripts to be honest with you, right? Like a TK front end or something like that. And so it was easy to look and see, oh, well, it's dumping it. It just can't parse it properly or it's looking in the wrong location. Yeah. What am I using this for, right? If it doesn't, if it doesn't actually help my workflow. So did um, you, would you just use, um, you know, like SSH or, or you know, whatever, um, what's the protocol of, of SSH over USB and just connect to the device anyway and just use the tools themselves? Because that's what I ended up doing. It wasn't yeah. until recently with Fios where I was like, hey, there's a GUI that kind of makes this a little bit easier. But for the longest time, it was just straight up, uh, you know, uh, Debian packages or, or command line tools in my SSH environment on my jailbroken device. And that was really it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that seemed to be the easiest way to handle it, especially as you moved through those jailbreaks yeah. because the support was lagging for those tools that, you know, in such a manner that, you know, half of them didn't work when you'd get a new jailbreak for iOS 11 or iOS 10, 
And so you you were stuck if you were looking at an application. And that's always my biggest fear with doing iOS app assessments is, crap, you're going to ask for something that the current version of my tool set doesn't support, whether that's face ID, you know, that or you're testing out some like touch ID, like function that like I'm running an old version of iOS and I haven't jailbroken or I haven't upgraded to the latest jailbreak. So there's always this kind of fine line that we're walking as security researchers and security people that, uh, you know, Apple can take away, they can pull the rug out at any given time. Um, Anyway, so like, I don't know if you, you kind of go through that every time there's a jailbreak and you're like, sweet, I got to upgrade everything right now because I know it works. Um, otherwise, I may be screwed in six months when a new app pops up. Right. So this, this isn't a, a stage thing. I swear this is just how my desk always looks. But so here's my, here's my, my Moto burner phone, as my wife calls it. And here's my, uh, my Nexus. So these are my Android devices. But... Also, I have one, two, three, and if I, my headphones were long enough, I have a iPad that's still in the box that when the iOS 11 jailbreak hit, I went out to Walmart and bought two new iPads, uh, one for myself and one for David Lindner, that uh, are on 11 dot whatever before 11.1.2 so they're they're jailbreakable and i haven't even act i haven't even done anything with it but it's there because yeah. it's always exactly what you said seth it's it's just this crazy um mad rush to find as many devices that are on the jailbreak as you uh, you know that, that yeah it's it's crazy because <laughs> it's never i think maybe a few times in the past three years and and, and i'm sure you remember this seth was it nine I think it was the 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 nine dot series where it made it all the way to the like nine dot three before the jailbreak was found. Jailbreak was was found, and we thought there wasn't going to be another jailbreak. Like there was some real thought that once clients upgraded past you know eight into nine, that we were just going to have to figure out what to do. And then the levy broke a little bit. The nine dot three, the pang, it's a pangu, uh, you know, came out, and then yeah. ten had a yar uh, yalu. And then now eleven has has jail, uh, Electra, so it things have gotten better. Uh, but there was a real scare there between eight and nine, where we just didn't know if there was going to be another one. Yeah, I, and I mean that that that's still my big fear is trying to build like a business around actually doing this sort of an assessment when you are so dependent on kind of this gray area of whether or not you're going to be able to get at the devices. Um, you know, I like we spend a lot of time, I, you know in that nine series, right? Talking about, all right, you know, we're at the point that we have to have source code because there's no other way for us to do this. Um, you know that, you know, Celebrite and some of the other like forensics tools, if they find any of those jailbreakable vulnerabilities, guess what? They're not going to release them because they want the ability to get into those devices. Um, and if you look at bug bounties for iOS, on that level, the cost reflects that, right? You know, those guys are willing to pay millions of dollars for you not to release that vulnerability or that exploit for iOS, you know, whatever, just so they have the ability to use it in the future. And I'm sure they're sitting on a number of those for their future business as well. So, I think actually, 
I think right. actually it was either David Lindner or, or, or David Corsi uh, in, in our work Slack who actually just pointed out yesterday that Keen Labs came out and said, hey, 11.3.x, we have a jailbreak. Uh, they're not going to release it. They never release it. Um, but uh, it, just like you said, it, it's vulnerability hoarding. Um, you know, we were very lucky that Ian Beer from Project Zero released the the, um, the jailbreak that led to the 11 dot series, and then uh, folks like um, like Coolstar and and the the person who did Liber Liber iOS or whatever it was called put the work in to get those out. And and specifically, I know he's probably not listening, but uh, whoever the developer was for for with the screen name of Coolstar put in a ton of work into the Electro jailbreak, and it's extremely solid they, they reworked sarix uh Cydia to get that running on it all of the different uh uh debian tools and app Git and whatever uh so it's a lot of work um and there's you know all the people who want to do pirating all the people who want to do tweaks all the people who want to do things that the device wasn't really made to do or, or break out of uh, apple's walled garden then there's this tiny percentage of folks like you and myself who just want to be able to test applications and just want to be able to run our tools on it and carry a device that's fully patched up to date in our pocket that's not jailbroken because we want to be secure as well and have a slew of test devices just for this so i don't know it's it's a really kind of odd place to be in but um i'm very yeah. thankful for people who who do the work oh yeah definitely right and you you look at some of those luca for the uh, yalu jailbreak and those guys always talk about how much crap they get, you know, yeah. from the, you know, from the community on, well, why aren't you releasing this? You know, what's the problem? This should just be like easy peasy, but no one's willing to step up and do the work. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a lot like open source projects, but it's, you know, this open source project that you're releasing that people expect support on, even though they're, they're basically killing the security of their device yeah. so that they can, you know, install some random like hello kitty theme over the top of ios right I, like i i don't think that a lot of people understand what they're doing when they jailbreak those devices um from a you know security perspective but they have something else that they want to do whether that's in china they want to be able to load up an alternate app store with all the you know download all the apps for free or whatever what have you speaking of, of, of china one tool that I haven't really mentioned today, and all the guys in Slack, including uh, yourself, uh, uh, both of you guys who, who used to be in Slack with me, will know I'm a huge proponent of Surge Proxy. So okay. Surge Proxy is an iOS proxy. It's for macOS as well as iOS. And I think it was actually developed by a Chinese developer to implement rules to route around the Great Firewall. But it's, it's basically a proxy that's written like a firewall. So when you create rules, it actually um, hooks in and reads like firewall rules. So it's it'll look at DNS or CIDR range or um, uh, or sorry hostname or CIDR range or whatever, um, and you can basically look at things even that don't obey the system proxy. You can look at things at a lower level utilizing a uh, basically full VPN tunnel that Surge makes on the device and then applies these firewall-like rules. Um, and the cool thing is when you combine Surge macOS and then connect your iOS device to it and use it as a gateway out, um, and then you can, you can start to apply proxy rules at the process level 
or the port or the, the domain or the CIDR or whatever, and you can get really well ingrained proxy rules then for those over to your proxy du jour, whatever it is that you like to work in, like I like burp. So, um, but if you're not using that, it's relatively cheap. I think it's like 60 bucks a seat on, on Mac OS. And then it is the most expensive app I've ever bought on iOS, but it's only 50 bucks and it's gotten me years worth of use. So it's actually not a lot in the security world, but it's the most I ever threw down in the iOS app store. But, um, and I brought three seats thinking I could use one seat on Mac OS and one seat on iOS. And then they're like, no, they're two different licensing <laughs> models. So I had to spend another 50 bucks or whatever, but uh, it's a really good tool. If you haven't used it, my, my coworkers say I'm gonna have Surge tattooed across my chest, like this Penguins logo, but uh, it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be useful. I mean, if we talk about web testing, right, like using, you know, Foxy Proxy or whatever to actually, like, you know, uh, look for regexes and then send send specific proxy requests through. That sounds very similar. Yep. Is that is that nssurge.com? Yeah, yeah, I think. Let me double. <clears throat> it's, uh, that's the... Yes, that's it, nssurge.com. Um, okay. The nice thing for the Mac client as well is if you put it in advanced mode, which is DNS hooking, um, if you load up the, the, the picture of it, you can actually click on the process, like I mentioned, and then just proxy by that process, then apply further rules to it. But like, I don't know if you've ever tried to proxy Electron clients, like um, the, all the GitHub stuff or <laughs> the, uh, you know, Chrome or, or, you know, your Electron app of the day. The way to proxy Electron apps is to actually pass in command line arguments. That's the best way to do it. But because um, it doesn't obey the, the system proxy stuff, I don't believe. So like Slack, for instance. Uh, but in Surge, you can just right click on the process and say send to proxy. So it's all done via the, the Surge um, interface, which is really nice. So, And then if you... So you're saying that pairs pretty well then with um, using something like SSL kill switch or with the Frida, you know, plugins or the Frida, you know, code shares for actually disabling SSL, right? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I use Surge for on iOS is just apps that don't obey system proxy. They create their own HTTP server uh, or they have, um, you know, things that, that uh, I don't know if Seth, you've ever tested antenna applications. Um, Antenna is kind of was kind of like a is that, is that uh, like a React Native application or something along those lines or kind of it, it, it's like an early Xamarin or, or um, you know a, a HTML based um, cross platform development but uh, it uses high ephemeral ports for its traffic it doesn't you know bind it to four four three or what have you. Um, so actually it doesn't obey the system proxy and because it, uh, um, it uses these random ports, ephemeral high ports, it was very tough to proxy unless you used IP tables and all kinds of different stuff. Where Surge, you would just, whatever the domain was, whatever, because it uses a full tunnel VPN to funnel all the traffic through that, then outbound, it catches everything that comes out of the device. You could actually, proxy cellular traffic out of the device to whatever proxy you want. 
Cool. Well, yeah, like I, I mean, this was the whole reason I wanted to have this discussion with you because that's one that I haven't played with, but I, I can, I can see where it's useful already in some of the apps that I've been looking at in the last few, few months. Um, yeah, that I mean that like the, the I, I can definitely see where where that would be useful. Um, so, like if we if we dig into those different styles of apps really quick, right? Like for those those people that are listening. Um, like we, we we're talking about you know native applications, but what else is there that's available from an app development perspective that you've run into? You've you've mentioned um, antenna, but what else do you see on the device that's that are that people are using to build these applications? Yeah, a lot of the apps uh, tend to be uh, so even the the cross platform. Uh, so we're talking about the Xamarin's the. Um, which, which I've seen a lot of lately. There's uh, Cordova. Um, there's a few other ones, which are, which are basically kind of um, right at once in an HTML JavaScript language. Then it uses the native APIs uh, and hooks that the um, frameworks expose for the different operating systems. So it has some for iOS. It has some for Android. It may even have some for BlackBerry or Windows Mobile uh, still hanging around there. Um, and then basically you can pick how you want it to deploy it. Obviously, if it's if you're deploying your code and cross-compiling it to different to, to different uh, and and I'm sorry, let me take one more step back. Something like Xamarin, they have basically a, a several levels of how you can develop. You can develop it more like a native app. And if you develop it more with the native hooks, then it's obviously gonna have a faster, cleaner feel, and it's going to it's going to expose more APIs. Or you can um, extrapolate yourself a step further and develop an application that looks extremely similar across the different um, uh, ecosystems. But then you're going to have less ability to interact with some of those those core APIs uh, that that uh, those frameworks expose. Um, but I, I, I interrupted myself. But but I would say Xamarin, Cordova. You said uh, you mentioned React Native, Antenna. Those are kind of the, the big ones that I can think of. I don't know, Seth, um, from from a code level, can you think of any ones that you've run into recently? No, I mean one of the most interesting one was somebody that actually developed a an app that was all um, there was a small like shim layer that was native to iOS and Android, but all of the code was C libraries, mm. right? On a low level, um, which yeah. was an interesting way to play it as well, right? You you, you forget that the, the the underlying operating system for both iOS and Android is, I mean, it's Linux and it's BSD. Yeah. So of course you could just develop some shared libraries and then use that as your core functionality. Um, I think that was one that actually, uh, you know, David Lintner was was on with me. That was that was pretty interesting to dig into because yeah. of the C. But then it also introduces all of those vulnerabilities that we don't necessarily think about when you're dealing with Swift. Or with Xamarin or any of those others, like your buffer overflows, your uh, your you know string vulnerabilities, right? All those others come back into play because you're handling things on such a low level. Um, yeah, I've been I've been looking in that into that a little bit. It might be even the same one that, that you're thinking of, but um, you know, like kind of lower level C uh, cross cross um, platform libraries that that hook and can do some interesting things. One thing that I've been doing. For my talk coming up at uh, B-Side Knoxville, I've been researching mobile um, analytics and, and some of the different uh, information that's that's uh, sent and received and stored in, the, in those analytic layers. Um, and 
I've also been tailing the syslogs from the, the iOS console and the Android um, logcat and seeing sometimes where even though applications know some things are restricted, they'll still ask the operating system to give them. And you actually see the operating system kind of give them a slap on the wrist and say, no, that's restricted. You can't get that level of detail. But most of the time it's for analytics. It's for, it's, it's you know, restriction for, for the UUID. It's restriction for uh, very specific user uh, privacy things that these analytics layers or the applications themselves to give to the analytics um, layer are requesting and they just want more and more detail to be able to tie you throughout all these properties and their properties and 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 um i don't know it's, it's a crazy web uh and i hope to to talk uh some some specifics in my talk coming up but. that yeah that sounds pretty interesting because i mean the fact that those apps are asking for it means that it you know depending on the ios version or the android version that you're running some of those probably give up that information right yep. you know those underlying operating systems aren't as refined. So I, I can see where asking for it, it doesn't cost them anything, but if they get the data back, then all of a sudden they know, hey, that much more about you and they can tie it back to whatever, you know, they can link it back on the back end, like everything, you know. And, and then they can give it to Cambridge Analytica with everything else. Right? Yeah, that was, that broke after I submitted my CFP. So I'm waiting for, people to raise their hands at Knoxville and say, what do you think about Cambridge? You know, is that your, your, um, cause the one thing I did put in like, is that one social media company listening to your conversations to target ad towards you? But I put that in before the whole Cambridge thing. And I can just imagine how that's just going to make people think that I had some type of inside baseball for, for, uh, the big F and I don't, I, I really don't, but, um, you know, that's another thing I, I, I wanted to mention as far as analytics. One, tool or trick of the trade that I can tell anyone who does bug bounties, anyone who does mobile application assessments or web application assessments, when Burp Suite gives you that pop-up that says, hey, do you want to hide everything that's outside of your, your target scope? Don't do that because you will miss all of the analytics data that's going to Adobe and go into Crashlytics and go into all the other ones that I'm going to shame a little bit uh, in a couple weeks. Um, and that's important because your session data is in there, your GPS logs are in there, your your um, IP addresses, all your stuff that that uh, is specific to you. Although it's their portion of the cloud analytics, and, and hopefully they're not leaking that to third parties or selling it. Um, but it's important to see that, and it might win you some bug bounty cash if you can see that they're leaking third. You know, I don't know how I don't do a lot of bug bounty, so I know our clients care if they leak session data in their analytics. I don't know if bug bounty providers would pay out for that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, one thing you definitely see is like in the refer header, it like yeah. if it comes from say, you know, something in with like a sensitive token in the URL or something like that. And uh, that shows up in the refer. Um, yeah, that that's so that's why you also to add to what you're saying. Yeah, you keep stuff, keep all that information so you can analyze it later. Don't not collect it <laughs> exactly bad idea i mean it's yeah, I mean, I, you still collect it right but it's hidden from your view yeah that's and, and oh I, I mean i i would totally agree with that right you know the first time it popped up i'm like oh it'll keep like my proxy log very like clean and neat and all i see is you know what what i want to see and then you start looking at the target and everything else that you're missing and i was like oh hold on a second right 
if I don't see everything, I don't know what my device is doing and what is coming from the app versus what is, uh, you know, coming from the OS and what you're, you'll typically see. So it's it's very easy to miss things. And one thing that's really important for mobile that I would I saw a lot of it's getting better as of late with the switch to HTTPS everywhere. But for a while, all of the app traffic would be HTTPS, or hopefully all of the app traffic would be HTTPS. But then the marketing and analytics would go over HTTP, and it had all that bad PII, whatever you want to put in there. I've seen socials in there. You name it, I've seen it in analytics. And that was going up to Adobe's marketing cloud or Crashlytics or Google's uh, whatever. And that was on H that was going over plain text HTTP. And in the mobile space, that is extremely concerning because our mobile devices are just connecting to whatever Wi-Fi they can find um, or not. Uh, and you know, SS7 and all the different concerns that are out there. I mean, it's it's compoundly bad when we're talking about a, a device that isn't a, a I mean a laptop is is could do the same things, I guess, but it's it's pretty concerning from mobile application space. So um, yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Ken, you have any questions? I've been peppering him with, you know, mobile stuff. And no, I'm just uh, absorbing. And um, you know, you two know a lot more about mobile, so it's it's nice to listen. Don't really have too too many questions. <laughs> One thing that that I I wanted to to bring up, I won't. I'll keep it in, in under a few minutes here. But we talked about um, TLS pinning, and we talked about using Frida. Uh, as well as um, SSL Kill Switch 2. One thing that I've been doing as of late is pulling down the IP, IPA, pulling down the APK, um, utilizing APK tool or utilizing um, um, Clutch to, to dump an unencrypted uh, IPA or just unpackage the IPA and look at the, the, the raw resources and finding where the pinning is actually at in the code, whether it's in the smallie and, and uh, I can just um, flip in my own hash for the pin or whether it's just a lot of times in, in, in iOS land, it's just a P12 file or whatever, not P12, but whatever uh, cert. Um, and it's just stapled right in the, the payload of the, the, of the archive of the IPA. It's not encrypted. It's not obfuscated at all. And if you just swap in your own cert, Either you point to a hash of your cert from the OK HTTP library in Android or um, the SSL context pinning or, or, or um, network manifest file in Android, or in iOS, you just sub in the actual cert, then rebuild the app or um, you know, use a, a impactor to reload the app on, on iOS. A lot of times you can just literally sub in whatever cert you want to pin to or just remove the the code that's doing the 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 or swizzle the the boolean value of whether it's checking for the cert pinning or not and i've had more luck with that as of recently than you know using like dynamic hooking or ssl kill switch or something like that to just bypass it all together i just basically pin to my own burp ca and that has been really effective as of late uh for for bypassing and, and several several episodes ago seth spoke to um both tls pinning as well as signatures being kind of the bane of pen testers existence when it comes to um 
gray box or white box testing like Seth and I spend most of our time doing. And having a feature toggle, having a test build, having something that you could provide if you really want your pen tester to spend time looking at your app and not defeating your your um, um, front door security is 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 vital. I think that's that's really important. Yeah, and, and most I mean most people that are paying you to do that are will be willing to provide some sort of staging build, but you know at times, especially if you're looking bug bounty wise at mobile apps, uh, like I, I I feel like I never know what's going to work with an app. Right? Um, there's there's all the different methods that you mentioned to actually go about doing that. Whether it's hey I found the cert in the IPA now I have to repackage it and push it back up with City Impactor, or it's Hey, you know, for this instance, it worked well on Android using you know whatever exposed library there to actually do the SSL, uh, you know, depinning or you know SSL kill switch. I like, yeah. I, I mean, again, it's one of those things that you know you try X. If it doesn't work, then you move on to something else, and eventually you you, you find a way to get around it. But that may not always be the case. Yeah. Right? It may take more effort than you necessarily want to be put it, put into it. So asking for that unpinned version probably will only take the developer two seconds to build you your own instance, and it will save you hours of time in the long run. One one quick story to go along with that. I was at Besides Orlando a couple weeks ago, and there was a couple gentlemen from Akamai who spoke to – I don't know if you may have seen it on Krebs or, or, or in the news. There was a pretty big – Android C2 botnet that was um, utilized for uh, DDoS against a, a number of different properties out there. And the gentlemen from Akamai were the ones who found it and, and um, identified it and vanquished it. Um, but uh, they did an awesome presentation. They worked actually with, with the Googles and with the um, uh, Amazon, with a couple other uh, big players to to look at the traffic, understand the traffic. There was some, some different things. And I don't want to take away from their presentation. It was awesome. But at the end of it, they actually showed um, the small e-code and they showed the different uh, uh, methods that they were using and, and um, some different obfuscation layers they did. And then the gentleman actually put in uh, pseudocode into a slide. Like this is the actual code in the Android apps. and This is what it was doing. And I raised my hand at the end and I said, this is fantastic. I can't believe you guys found all this is awesome. But I have one question, why didn't you use um, APK tool and then use uh, Dex to jar and then JD GUI or something like that to actually look at the pretty close to decompile Java? And the, the guy kind of looked puzzled and he looked over at his, at his cohort and he's like, I didn't know that existed. And he literally took, did they did all this awesome work from Smalley code, right? Um, yes. Just, I was like, man, I really wish, like, they probably could have done this in a port, you know, a fraction of the time. And then he looked at me and he said, "Well, why isn't that just built into APK tool? That would only make sense." And I was like, "You're right. That should be. <laughs> it should just be one stop shop." So uh, it was just funny. Uh, there are so many mobile tools out there. There are so many ways of of skinning the cat. Um, and and you know, you have to be agile. You have to to keep up with all the different uh, repos that are out there. And 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 um, know the different OS limitations and the the different API levels in Android and and the restriction. Android is getting awesome with their restrictions. I, I briefly mentioned on it earlier, but starting with N, you can't install a CA. You cannot install a CA that's trusted 
for applications uh, or, or Chrome, um, unless you have like MDM level corporate push, which I would love to create a tool that uses that functionality uh, if that's possible, but that's on my back burner. Um, but uh, you have basically, you have to get root level on the device. You have to then um, toggle the, the OS, you have to mount the OS into write mode. You have to write to the system um, uh, I have a blog out there on, on Invisium's blog about exactly what you need to do and how to do it. But if you don't have root access to your device in Android 7 or above, you can't add a trusted CERP CA for Burp uh, to listen to. You just can't do it. And um, I know our friend Jerry Gamblin pinged me a few weeks ago, uh, probably longer than that now, and he said, hey, I'm looking at this Samsung S8, but I can't figure out how to install the CA on it. And the Samsungs, you can't root. You couldn't do it. And he's like, "Okay, right, I'm going to go get a, a, a Pixel then. <laughs> yep. It's like, yeah, I would too. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it, it always feels kind of kind of like a race, right? You know, is, you know how long are, are we going to be able to, to use these tools and actually have an updated OS that we can use them with uh, on both sides? Um, granted, on the iOS side, it's, or on the Android side, it seems a lot easier just because... There, there is the pixel that's out there. There are the developer editions of the phones that we can get a, get a hold of, to run and get access to. Um, and they've, you know, Google has made that easier to their credit, right? It's because they want developers to actually build tools on there, be able to troubleshoot and see what's going on. Yeah. Whereas on iOS, they're like, oh, just use the simulator, even though it's completely a different platform. When it really comes down to it, exactly. Are there any? Uh projects like there's the whole like awesome appsec resources list on github is there anything like that for mobile that i can point people towards that's a great question i probably have some some bookmark i'll have to have to see which ones i have i, I know there are some um i can't think of any off the top of my head though. i'm searching my bookmarks now yeah <laughs> no no worries i just thought it'd be nice and if not we can always um tweet it out or something maybe put it in the description I mean, you know, you, you Google Android security awesome. There's an Android security resource. There's online analyzers. But like of the 20 analyzers, 12 are crossed out because they no longer work, right? <laughs> yeah, it seems much harder to keep up with than, yeah. than web testing. Well, here, yeah. let's post that one out there because it's, it's pretty interesting because it does, you know, call out Drozer and Exposed and some of those other tools that we've mentioned that we didn't really dig into. Um, and, there's, also, right? there, there's also one that's, the, there's a there's a Frida list um, that just shows all the different tools that came from Frida and uses Frida hooks under the covers. So there is the, uh, the I, Fios one that I've obviously mentioned a few times, but there's other ones out there um, that are also built on top of Frida that do some different things as well. So I'm trying to find the link for that, but if I can't find it now, I'll definitely follow up with it and send it. Yeah. So I listed the, uh, the uh, Android security awesome one. What's this <laughs> new six file? Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. And actually that looks, uh, that looks like a pretty good list. There's some things in there that, you know, I'd want to play with as well. Um, Small static code analysis, right? Quark, we didn't even talk about that, right? The, you know, the scanner, that's from LinkedIn. Um, so there, there, there's all sorts of things that you can play with to analyze applications, but like I mean, Quark, Quark, that cat gets difficult. Yeah. 
Quark has to use some type of, of, is it just all static or does it use some type of virtualization? I thought it was doing some sort of virtualization, but I could be wrong. It's been so long since I've played with it because I it, it is scanning from a different perspective, right? Do you have a link for that? For Quark? Yeah. Quark, however you want to say it. Yeah, here, let me, we can post that one out too. Yeah, so we've talked about a whole bunch of tools. We're gonna have to list those on the on the the site itself or with within the episode. Um, we'll copy and do that. Um, well, actually, as it turns out, what YouTube does now is on that live chat, it actually keeps the um, keeps the video. So next to the video, it keeps it keeps the chat at the oh. time that it had been pasted during. Um, Cool. video so like basically if you go to the very if you want any of these links you just go to the very end of the video the live chat will be there and you can grab it nice yeah. oh cool yeah that is nice. that is handy then <laughs> i guess they aren't just throwing it away like we thought <laughs> no they were and uh oh, it's, it's a new it's a new feature cool yeah i believe so um yeah well, uh, so Kevin, right, we've talked a lot about mobile stuff. I, we really got into the weeds, which is awesome. Is there anything else? I mean, we've been going for an hour and 15. Obviously, you and I and Ken could talk about this for hours, but you know, to kind of like put a summary on it or anything else that you want to talk about before we, we call it tonight? Um, trying to think here. No, I, I think... Um... I think, you know, we, we've really, Actually, yeah, please, please. No, no, no. Like, you know, we've talked about all this. Um, we dug into the weeds, but maybe if we like call back a little bit, crawl back a little bit, somebody that wants to get into mobile app assessment work, mm -hmm. where would you suggest that they go? Where would they start? So you've mentioned this a few times, both of you, Ken, Ken and Seth, have, have you both mentioned this a few times. We live in a new era where, uh, you know, in the past three years or, or whatnot, where these companies have just opened bug bounties that, and they have applications. So I've mentioned it at least once in this podcast, but Jet, Jet has an open bug bounty. And one of their properties that they allow you to test against is the jet.com uh, or the Jet uh, Android and iOS app. One of the things that Jet does is they happen to pin Certificates. Uh, one of the things that I've mentioned uh, in several different ways is how to bypass that. So if you are trying to understand that, you want your first hurdle, there is an app that they don't mind if you test against. Uh, obviously, read the rules and 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 scope in the uh, Hacker One or, or Bug Crowd uh, rules of engagement or scope. But that would be an awesome place. Look at real apps that are out there. Go out and 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 middle. I do this all the time. I don't want to. I don't want to advocate for it, but. I have like a hundred apps on my phone that I use daily or that I have installed. And you know, some of them I do use daily and I like to look and middle them and see what they're doing and see how much of my information it's, it's throwing out there or whatnot. As long as you're not modifying, tampering, sending that, uh, you're doing uh, rogue stuff. There's nothing wrong with, with looking at the traffic that's going on on your device or, or getting a test device and, and passively looking at, at, at traffic. So that's, those would be places that I would start. I would look at, bug bounties, you can look at real apps, you can see uh, the kind of protections that are in place. I would, um, you know, go out there and there are older apps like um, Jack's Droid Goat or, or um, there's there's an iOS version of that. Uh, but specifically, I would look at 
real world apps and, and look at the, the different um, real um, applications that are out there or go out to GitHub and look at code. There's, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of applications out there in both iOS and Android that have open source code out there that you can look at and, and familiarize with yourself with it. Get used to Android Studio, get used to Xcode, pull stuff down, build apps, look at the error messages, look at the debugging uh, you know, consoles, play around with the emulators. Um, it's, we, and, and I know you guys mentioned this a lot in the podcast you had with Charles, but we just live in this information where there's just so much knowledge and just a wealth of information that um, getting started isn't a matter of finding a $400 tech textbook that um, you know is is this level of entry that's that's impossible for for most people or, or improbable for most people. There's just so much free information out there. Cool. No, yeah, that's a that's a great recommendation. Is just you know, hey, try and man in the middle of some of this traffic. Pull down Xcode, um, you know, start somewhere with an app that you use all the time. Figure out how it's talking to the back end. Yeah, you know, that's and then and then jump into the bug bounties, right? If that's the direction that you want to go. But you yeah. know, at the very least, you should know what Facebook is doing with your data, right? Or you know, or Twitter or whatever else. Because um, if you if you understand that, or if you could peel back those layers, then most likely you can peel back any of the other layers that exist around those apps. And also there's tons of, of free or next to, to nothing, uh, you know, via the different uh, training aggregators out there to learn Kotlin, to learn Java, to learn uh, you know, Android Java, uh, to learn Swift, to learn Objective-C. Um, Apple has a ton of classes. I've actually gone through and learned, uh, taking the Swift um, uh, 3, I think, is the latest one they have, even though Swift 4 is, is now out. Yeah, uh, but do they have a do they have a Swift four class? It was I don't one. think the class is out. I mean, yeah. I think they've got some resources with the class. Okay. Yeah, so the, so the class is for three, um, but uh, it's like a whole community college class that's Apple education. Like they developed it themselves, self paced. You know, it's it's awesome. All the way down to, of course, they have their um, their Swift playgrounds. Uh, you know, so you can start there and go all the way up to, to infinity is how complicated or how um, how in-depth you want to go as far as, as learning. But the same same things exist out there for Kotlin. The same things exist out there for Java, for Android. Um, and there's just tons and tons of free or next to nothing resources for actually learning how to develop. And obviously, you guys are, are, are both developers first and, and security folks uh, or have gotten into security from being developers. So I'm sure you would... Uh, um, certainly suggest that as far as if you're wanting to get started in mobile and understanding mobile would be learn how to develop for it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you, if you understand how it's built, it's a lot easier to find the flaws at, realistically. So, um, cool. Can any last minute thoughts or, you know, Kevin, you too, but no, Kevin, I mean, I think I would just ask Kevin, you know, Hey, I know. Cause well, looking at your Twitter, you're definitely speaking at, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, besides PGH, I think. Yep. And is there anywhere else you wanted to mention? Um, any places you're traveling to, to speak that you wanted to uh, mention to folks? So I completely front loaded this year. The only thing I have for the second half or that I want to, to, uh, put in a CFP for, for the second half is Derby. All my other stuff is first half of the year and it's really crammed in these next few, couple of months. So I don't want to sound silly, but I have 
um, I sack uh, Phoenix next week. Cool. Then I go directly into B-Sides uh, Knoxville the next day, which is a week from Friday. Then um, B-Sides Pittsburgh. I have a CFP out for B-Sides Cleveland, which is, is, is right around the corner. So hopefully uh, that'll come to, to fruition. Uh, B-Sides Orlando was just a few weeks ago. So that was another one. So I've done a lot. I have a lot in this very tight span here. Uh, but yeah, so if you're in the Phoenix area, if you're in the Knoxville area, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, of course, you probably already know me, uh, and then Cleveland, hopefully here if I get selected, but yeah, a lot going on here in the next, uh, couple months. Well, that just means your talk. Well, if it's the same talk, then it just means your talk is going to be really, really good and really tight and really polished. Not a single one that I've mentioned is the same talk. Are you serious? Wow. Why would you do that to yourself? No, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Every CFP I do, I'm like, what would they, what would something different? I don't want to give the same thing. You know, this, my Orlando was the same talk from Code Mash. So that one was, and of course, Code Mash is in, in Sandusky, Orlando's in Orlando. So that's, that's a very different regional thing. I don't think there was a single person who, who would have been a crossover, but especially from, Cleveland to Sandusky. There's probably going to be a lot of people who were at both. Um, Cleveland to Pittsburgh. I'm very cognizant that there's a lot of people who will leave besides Pittsburgh and drive the hour and a half and go to Cleveland the next day or the next week. So I try not to submit to both of those for the same talk. Um, and then beside Knoxville, I decided to do the whole mobile analytics thing. So that was a new, yeah, it's just, it's kind of snowball. You know, thinking about it, I would have done the same thing when it comes to the regional thing, just for that reason that it's not the same. Um, because yeah. you don't want to yeah yeah but yeah so so uh the one for pittsburgh which was just announced today uh i'm going to be talking about testing rest uh through um postman and insomnia and swagger uh and and, and really talking about the basics of rest and and uh, the different tooling around that so that that should be a, a fun one cool yeah that's a i mean that's a good topic right even if it's pretty closely in with mobile stuff and testing those backend web services. I, I saw that on Twitter and I was like, oh man, you should post all that, right? I, I'm going to have to watch that because I do use like Postman, Postman and I've done that before. So that'd be cool. And Postman's Electron. And, and if you don't know how to, you know, it's it's documented, but you have to pass the command line arguments when you, when you run Electron to be able to middle that traffic. So just like even little things like that, or of course there is the configuration for proxies in Postman, but if you don't do that, right, there's, there's some, some little things about each one of those tools that um, knowing how to chain things, knowing how they, they are written or knowing how to use them effectively uh, will just make your job easier. Oh, there's also ways of parsing Postman or Swagger docs, docs within Burp so that you can just use the 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 uh um xml or the uh um json um, documentation from those tools parse them in extensions in burp then just use burp to send those out uh and basically bypass those or those other tools there's there's all kinds of different fun stuff that i'll talk about here in in, in pittsburgh cool yeah so phoenix next week huh phoenix that's crazy I, i go to phoenix I leave directly out of Phoenix and fly to Atlanta, 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 drive to, to Knoxville because there was no way to get from Phoenix to Knoxville in any short amount of time. Um, but yeah, Phoenix on Thursday, Knoxville on Friday. But, are you uh, doing, uh, are you still doing the keto diet? I'm trying. I've been a little more lax. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to put in a, 
a link here to to Chompy's breakfast menu. It's a lot of if you're if you're in Phoenix and you want a good breakfast, hey, head over there. Awesome. Yep. Yep. Cool. Hey, one thing I, I know we're we're trying to wrap up. One thing that I, I wanted to dovetail, uh, and I, I haven't caught last week's podcast yet because uh, I haven't driven anywhere. Um, but uh, I like to listen to you guys in the car. But um, the previous week with with Charles, I think it was Charles, right? No, yeah. uh, that was Karthik. No, no, I'm sorry. The previous week to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two weeks ago was Karthik, or was Charles? Yeah, you're right. Yep. So one thing that you guys hit on that I, I just wanted to mention briefly was was diversity. And uh, I know I'm a I'm a, a white guy talking about diversity, which is is um, not necessarily what everyone wants to hear. Uh, but um, the one thing that that I've been listening to other other podcasts and been listening to other uh, talks about diversity. And the one thing that I, I really liked uh, was, and I, I don't remember exactly where it came from, but someone was speaking to um, diversity and they were saying how not only, um, you know, just the, the fact that we need to be more inclusive, we, we need to have females and we need to have um, people from all walks of life for um, just the, just the, the normal decency thing and, and just just to, to be better people and be more well-rounded. The fact is that the more inclusive your environment is, the more different perspectives you have from different walks of life and different um, backgrounds and the faster problems can get solved. And so even though, uh, you know, you have these Silicon Valley companies who have a lot of guys who look like me and have educations from the, from the Ivy League backgrounds and, and, and are much smarter than I am, uh, the fact of the matter is problems get solved faster when you have people from different walks of life and people who um, have different uh, backgrounds and, and, and have a, a different perspective for, for problem solving. So um, I just I, I, I know that um, you can talk the talk, and, and at the end of the day, we, we all need to walk the walk. But I am a big proponent of leveraging people's backgrounds, leveraging pe- different understandings and perspectives and things. And I think that once we can be more diverse, once we have better better coverage of of, of every you know walk of life in our our day to day environments, that problems will get solved faster, and we'll you know see things that that never really you know. Um, even bubbled up to the surface for, for the normal day to day, just because we didn't have the right people looking at the right direction for, for the problem. So, oh, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you get all the same people or if you have all the same people with the same thought process, it's, I mean, it's just a bunch of people nodding and agreeing and agreement to, to one another. Yeah. Right. So it's nice to have some, uh, alternative views on things and, and, uh, which, which, you know, is also, it also brings up, you know, a whole other topic, I guess, which is like how to have a rational conversation and use critical thinking, but that's a whole other thing. So yeah. uh, both equally important. Well, well maybe I mean, that we, we can talk through that the next time Kevin comes on, you know, so. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, I'm from the sticks from the middle of the woods, um, you know, didn't even really have a computer until, uh, you know, later on in life. My father never touched a computer until the mid 2000s. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we had a computer at school, obviously, and, and at home, um, literally, you know, I walked almost a mile to the bus and, and my whole graduating class was a hundred people. So I'm certainly not, and I didn't go to a fancy college anywhere. Um, I went to a tech school and then, and then, uh, ended up getting, you know, finishing my four year degree, uh, you know, via uh, some online schooling. But so I, I, I certainly probably don't fit necessarily that mold, 
But at the end of the day, um, you know, I certainly haven't faced problems that other folks have faced, uh, you know, whether that be gender or skin color or, um, you know, different biases out there. So I think not only do you have to consider those things as well as backgrounds and, and um, you know, barriers to entry and, and all of those things all come into to play into, you know, helping us be more well-rounded and come at things from, from different angles. So again, I, I hate to be that guy um, who's, who's talking about diversity when I haven't faced a lot of the, the problems that, that are that are out there. But I think, um, you know, throwing it out there and, and letting people know that we are, everyone should be willing and open to talking about this and understanding that it takes, you know, a village to do all of this and, 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 and to solve the problems that we need to solve. Um, we can't, like Ken had mentioned, uh, we can't come at this from from an echo chamber. And I'm, I'm 100% supportive of that. Yeah, like, um, I mean, at the same time, I know because I've had that feeling before about like, uh, yeah, I'm not really the, probably the, the the right person. But I think the thing is, is for, for at least what, what I've heard from others' opinions is that we are the at least part of the part. I mean, there's there's various roles that everybody plays in, in improving uh, this community, but we are the right people in a sense, uh, or at least one of the right types of people just because like if we're not promoting it if we're not promoting diversity and 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 uh <clears throat> excuse me inclusion it's that much harder for 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 others that are trying to uh, be a part of the community um it's like an uphill battle so yeah it's it, it's something we keep trying to bring up and keep trying to uh to work on and um hopefully uh, this makes it somewhat even having this conversation makes it somewhat easier for for someone out there um to 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 be because it is you know here's the thing like tech in general is tough regardless of your background or who you are um it just is like you know so there and then there's that added uh, difficulty of like you know um maybe feeling like you don't belong or something along those lines. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I have, uh, I mentioned him a few times this podcast, but David Lindner was, was someone who helped me get into mobile and, and understand mobile a little bit. I've had other people who've helped me along the way. If there's anyone out there who wants to reach out to me with questions about mobile, whether it's Twitter, whether it's, um, my OWASP email, whether it's whatever, you know, feel free. As long as you're not asking me to hack into your significant other's Facebook <laughs> account, um, or, or do anything illicit or illegal, I will be happy to send you pages and pages and pages of GitHub repos or free, free stuff. Or if you really need it, I'll send you some, some no starch credit and you can go get no starch books, or I'll sit, I'll give you access to pen test Academy and, and you can get that, like whatever you need. Um, if you're having a tough time in trying to figure out a niche and a way to get in, um, uh, my DMs are open. However, I can say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not elite hacker. Um, awesome. But if I can help anyone out, I'm, I'm definitely here. You're elite hacker. Awesome to me, man. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, Kevin, thanks again for coming on um, and for talking through it. Right. Uh, you know, both the mobile side and, you know, uh, talking diversity too. It's, it's super important and, you know, supporting others in the community that is there coming up who, whoever they may be. And I feel like is the way that it should be. So, um, but yeah, any, any last thoughts before we call it for tonight? Thank you 
very much for having me again. I, I really appreciate it. As soon as the last one wrapped, I sent you guys both a message like, hey, anytime you need someone to fill in, even if it's not like Kevin's going to be on in XYZ weeks, it's like, oh, hey, someone couldn't make it. Can you jump on tonight? Um, you know, I, I, I was very excited and, and tonight certainly um, lived up to, to the same level of excitement, maybe a little bit uh, technical at, at points. Hopefully we didn't lose anyone, but uh, thank you very much for having me. No, thanks. And uh, stay on when we end the broadcast. Sounds good. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks, Kevin, for giving giving everyone a bunch of insight. Um, so we appreciate it. Uh, next week will be Seth. That's just I think you and I next week. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll announce the topic. We're still discussing a couple of things that we want to talk through, but um, yeah, There's join us next so week, same time. There's so many things we could talk about. So we're trying to figure out like what to yeah, talk about. Um, I think some of the upcoming guests we've discussed um, in the pipeline, uh, Chris Gates, Carnal Onage on Twitter, uh, Alex Smolin. Um, so we're working through this guest list for, for May and um, we should have some speakers and, and dates lined up. Cool. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Thanks. All right. Bye.